Welcome to Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. If you're like me, you don't know when it happened, but one day self-care and wellness were everywhere. Those messages about taking care of yourself, healing, thriving, making yourself whole, being enough, reclaiming your power, owning it, they were all around us. From cereal boxes, to the makeup counter, to advertisements for things like furniture rental, or CBD sticks, mobile apps, your everyday cup of coffee. A new mindset about how to be, but also about how to consume, had started to settle in. As second nature as this may all seem right now, the concept of self-care actually comes from a very radical place in recent American history. I spoke with journalist Aisha Harris about how we got here. Today, Aisha is a writer and editor of the New York Times opinion section, where she covers culture and society. But before that, she wrote an important article in early 2017 for Slate magazine called A History of Self-Care. And in it, she outlined how the self-care movement actually started, was later adopted by the yuppie cohort, and merged with the hippie-fueled wellness movement. And after the election of Donald Trump, had a sudden politically inspired resurgence. Yes, self-care and its close cousin wellness are everywhere, but it wasn't always this ubiquitous. Natalia Melman Petruzella is a historian of contemporary American politics and culture, and she points to a 1979 episode of 60 Minutes with Dan Rather, where the early commercialization of wellness sounds more like a pseudoscience, or as he says later in the episode, maybe even a cult. It's a movement that is catching on all over the country among doctors, nurses, and others concerned with medical care. Wellness is really the ultimate in something called self-care, in which patients are taught to diagnose common illnesses and, where possible, to treat themselves. More than that, it is a positive approach to health, what one doctor calls recognizing that health is not simply the absence of disease. This clip had already come a long way from the beginnings of our cultural shift, and we've come a long way since then. I sat down with Aisha to talk about the connected history of politics, race, gender, and identity that underpins the self-care space today, and how its many interpretations reflect our American culture. Basically, self-care has been around for decades, probably even hundreds of years. But I think in its most modern incarnation, we can kind of look to the origins as having been starting around the 1960s with the civil rights movement. There was very much an emphasis around the fact that Black people were not getting the support system and the care that they needed from the institutions that were supposed to provide them, whether it was healthcare, education, uh, financially. And so, uh, you know, thrown in with all of these marches and, and fights for equality was this emphasis put on the fact that schools were inadequate. So going along with the fact that there were all these concerns about equality within that, there was also the concern about education, the inequities between black schools and white schools um, and, and healthcare and medication. And you see that happening in the 60s. But then once the women's rights movie kind of kicked off in the late 60s and into the early 70s, they adopted a lot of the similar concerns that were occurring. And so Women, and especially women of color, were 
founding organizations and clinics to specifically address the needs for women, whether it was abortion, single motherhood. And uh, these places were a way for women to take care of themselves. It was very different from what we've seen today. It was all about survival in many ways. And even after the civil rights movement, you also saw this pick up with the Black Panther movement as well. Alondra Nelson has a book called Body and Soul, which focuses on the Black Panthers. And in part of that book, she really talks about how they started these clinics, these survival programs that provided testing, medical testing for within the Black community, uh, especially for uh, diseases and illnesses that tend to afflict the Black community in disproportionate ways like sickle cell anemia. And those were ways to make sure that Black people were getting the help that they needed. And it was all community-oriented. Like, the government wasn't doing much to help in that regard. You also see that with the Black Panthers notable breakfast program, which provided right. which provided free breakfast to kids going to school because they realized like kids need to eat. They if they weren't able to get it at home, they could, could get it from them early in the morning. And so it was a really radical view of self-care that existed. And it was primarily started by women and people of color. And even like alongside that same vein was, you know, this was also happening in more like medical social terms as well. When you look at people who committed themselves to being social um, social workers, therapists, um, the idea of self-care also came into to play there because the idea is, you know, you can't help others if you can't help yourself. And so there were studies being done showing that social workers, especially people who were working with people who had even worse problems than them, like taking on that emotional baggage and that mental baggage was draining and they would report burnout and like an inability to both take care of themselves, but then also help the people they were supposed to be helping. And the weird thing about that is that like wrapped up in that is this idea that like you need to take care of yourself so you can care for others. So like, while it is about your own well-being, it's still about providing for other people in a way. Yeah, there's this weird kind of tension between that idea of self-care. But, you know, once you move into the 70s, there is this movement that's kind of not quite self-care, but is like an offshoot of it. I think most people who study this would would say that like wellness and self-care are two different things, but they're like two sides of the same coin in a way. And with wellness, that was sort of more attributed to the hippie culture, this idea of eating and living holistically, it definitely had a different aspect in terms of class. It wasn't so much about survival, but about making your life better. So you're like, you're at a different starting point. These are people like in the San Francisco Bay Area who, you know, were seen kind of as a cult, uh, there was in mm-hmm. my in my article <laughs> in my article I re- refer to this segment on sixty minutes with uh, Dan Rather, and he comes to them and talks to them about how they are seen as a cult. This in itself is also a rejection in a way of of traditional norms, but not in the way that women and people of color were dealing with it, and the fact that like the government wasn't providing them clearly wasn't providing them with like the basic needs for survival. These were people in the wellness movement really felt as though they were trying to reject Western medicine and felt that there were better ways to live. Like it was about improving your life from a starting from a higher, better level of livelihood than, you know, most people of color were dealing with at that time. And so that's kind of where you see this movement towards 
living your best life and it becoming corporatized. I mean, one of the things that I think really crystallizes that one of the moments is Jane Fonda's workout videos and like the whole, <laughs> the <Yes>. whole exercise <laughs> movement in the eighties, um, you know, jazzercise and all of those different things that like really attributed being skinny equals healthy, being, you know, eating fresh equals healthy and, and equals wellness. And that's kind of like where we see the strains of, you know, what we see today with the influencers and goop and all of those things as well. Right. This point that you're describing in the 80s with the Dan Rather interview with Jane Fonda, the whole proliferation of products that came around hippie culture, this is when we first start to see it really disassociate from being a political statement. And some have argued that now it starts to pull away from its roots and it becomes more of a class thing like you described. It's not even serving the people that it was there to serve in the first place, right? Like now you have to pay for this kind of wellness or self-care. And another thing that was interesting about what you said was the start is a very community-oriented thing. The purpose of it was so that you could contribute to your community ultimately. But the self-care of today, which, you know, there's a few more steps I want to, we'll get to like how we got to today. The self-care of today is really individualized. It seems like the community aspect has been cut out in a lot of ways. I mean, would you agree? You know, I think in some ways it has, especially for women of color. I think it still is very, like, it's become individualized, but not in a way, like, they're still starting, women of color especially, are still often starting from similar points as their previous generations were in terms of not getting the adequate care that they are supposed to have. You know, we're seeing it now with with COVID where Black people are disproportionately getting sick and dying from this disease, unlike almost every other demographic aside from the Latino community. And so obviously self-care has become much more mainstream, including among Black women and women of color. But at the same time, it's still... It's still about survival because it's not just about scraping by in terms of needing food or needing like the right care. It's also about daily microaggressions in the in the workplace, um, just racism <laughs> mm -hmm. and the PTSD that I think a lot of people experience now that we have. We're seeing so many people of color, well, really specifically black people being killed on camera Um and and having to relive that and having to see these headlines all the time, that has been tied now to self-care and, and, and how to how to handle yourself and how to deal with that while also trying to function in the world and be a professional and and feed your family and 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 take care of your health. So it's all really I think like that's happening alongside this in, influencer Instagram Lululemon goop culture that very much exists. I think also like Another form of self-care I'm seeing is think of like something like the wing where the whole point of that institution was to have women have a space specifically designed for women. And at first it was like, oh, men weren't exactly welcome. <laughs> um, and there is that whole thing. And so the idea was like, this is a space for women. Of course, we've learned through a series of exposés that there's a very specific type of woman who is often invited to join that space, usually white, young, and not necessarily queer or queer identifying. But that is also in its way 
it's this like kind of weird warped version of self-care because that is supposed to be a space that's like values womanhood over anything perpetuating like masculinity or like the typical male dominated spaces. Right. And then what about the LGBT community's role in the rise of self-care, especially in the beginning? I mean, the civil rights movement really has been the template for every movement that's come after it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, very clear the like the LGBT community has been very instrumental in, in dealing with that. One of the people I interviewed for my article in Slate was Jace Har, who is a trans man. And he wrote a very interesting article or flowchart called You Feel Like Shit, an Interactive Self-Care Guide. And essentially the flowchart is a way for you to check in with yourself. It asks you questions prompting you to check in. And it's like, have you drank water today? If not, drink a glass now and then move to the next step. Have you gotten enough sleep? If not, take a nap, then move to the next step. And it's another form of radical self-care in you know dealing with, as a queer person, LGBTQ person, having to deal with the things that they they do, it's a way to fight against that and to really take care of yourself. Because as my LGBT friends have told me, and and as trans people are making very clear through social media and through articles and whatnot, like just their existence is an act of resistance and is a radical act. And you have to take care of your body. Um, There's that really hokey phrase, like the body is the temple, but like it is the vessel, like it is you. And so that concern with taking care of the body is really, really central to any disenfranchised group people. Of course. So like, as you described, it seems like there were these two different branches of self-care and wellness, if you want to include that too, coexisting and, and moving along parallel tracks. And I think a lot of people, including yourself, have said that 2016, though, was when self-care really came into the mainstream. Can you talk about that a little bit? 2016 was a year that was definitely a turning point, I think, for a lot of America. Um, obviously, 2020 probably has a beat now, but that was kind of the precursor to it because you had people really, really stressing out about Trump and his presidency and what that meant and what that meant for especially uh, women, people of color, immigrants. It, it, like So many demographics were endangered. And so you saw this rise in both self-care, but also, you know, I, I actually did another article right after the election or a, f- a couple months later about the rise in self-defense classes that were taking place across the country. Oh, wow. Wow. Where, you know, especially ones that were targeted at LGBTQ people and Black people and people of color because people were legitimately scared. And so... That in itself is kind of like a another offshoot of self-care of like, okay, how do I prepare myself if something goes down to protect my body from violence, like physical violence, not just like institutional systematic violence. So that was very much the turning point. And when you see lots and lots of articles coming out about how to handle yourself and how to do self-care. Before that, there had been, I think also there's like a moment there was a turning point before that also, with which was like the rise of sort of feminist blogs. 
in the early 2010s, you had everything from the hairpin to Jezebel and, and all these other feminist blogs that also have like components of self-care embedded into them and like talking about the ways in which you take care of yourself, whether it's shutting off your cell phone for how many hours, like get off Twitter, go like pamper yourself, treat yourself, like all these things were sort of wrapped in and embedded in the feminist blogs. And I think that those were were kind of like the building blocks toward 2016 and made self-care, like it didn't just come out of nowhere, but like it definitely, like they led the way for that to happen, I think in 2016. And then that's when like, it just became part of the vernacular across the mainstream. Another thing that I've read was that really 2016 was the turning point where more than ever, you saw particularly white women embracing self-care and the culture and mindset pieces of it, the pieces that that they wanted to use. And that's what kind of burst this new D2C economy of all these brands that were layering self-care and wellness over a product. The other thing also that I think contributed to all of this is as wellness is be- and self-care are becoming more mainstream, you kind of have this like peak around hustle culture, right? Silicon Valley has been exported to the rest of the world and we're romanticizing the hustle and the grind, which dovetails so perfectly into the American identity anyways, this idea of like working and there's virtue and hard work and hard work always pays off. And it almost seems like as the volume on one got louder, the volume on the other got louder as well. Yeah, that... That work hard, play hard mentality was, is, is and has been very, very much a part of especially the millennial culture. And I think, you know, that's been amplified by social media, especially like when you think about Instagram, you think about all those influencers who are constantly like hashtagging, like hustle, like I'm hustling, here's what I'm doing. But then like, it's also like, oh, and then here's me laying on the beach, like self care, haha. There's like, that weird dichotomy that also very much comes from this place of having access to certain types of self-care and being able to do those things. Like traveling especially has become a big thing. And especially for Black people, there's been a lot of articles about Black travelers, Black women traveling, traveling together, groups and organizations that have been started to organize group trips together. And, and those in themselves are seen as this act of self-care in part because there were times like when Black people were not able to travel as much. They didn't have the funds. They didn't have the opportunity to do those things. And so like in a way, being a Black person who's able to travel now is like seen as both a privilege and also like a way of an act of self-care as well. It's like a way of getting out of the country. It could be a way of like getting out of getting away from American racism. There's lots of articles about black women relocating and like actually living in, in European countries and Caribbean countries because they feel as though they've been treated better there. There's all these like really interesting strains of self-care that are happening from group to group, from age group to age group. And I really do think like so much of that has to do with social media and and how we live our lives on online now. Right. And we can't forget Instagram's influence in all of this. It's created this weird um, kind of uh, nonsensical dynamic where it, it almost doesn't count unless you can display it. But to actually practice self-care, you have to pull away from 
you know, displaying and showing. And I think that's also kind of morphed the meaning of self-care. And what I want to talk about now is the brands that were involved in all this. Instagram is a, is a big one. I think we understand their, their influence in really making self-care a very visual, consumable thing. Um, what about other brands? Goop is an obvious one, but what are the ones that we don't think about that have been instrumental in kind of pushing the narrative around self-care forward, changing what it means, helping us kind of develop our current American relationship to what it is? I mean, I definitely think that, you know, we already mentioned the wing, but I think that the wing is like very much of that of that ilk and other places like it, there's been many offshoots like it of like, we're going to create this social club that is specifically for this group of people or there are these types of like-minded people. Obviously there's Lululemon, which uh, has paired self-care with like the, the whole athleisure industry is very much about self, like this weird corporatized self-care, but also just like, gyms like luxury gyms uh i think especially yes. of, some, of, <laughs> of something like um equinox where it's like you pay a very high premium price for not just access to gyms but like boutique classes and uh you know they have towels for you that are free well they're free because it costs so much to go there but like you can like go to the spa like it's everything you want to like pamper yourself in one so i think like that combination of exercise with with self-care and corporatization has definitely been a really big thing. But even just like beauty brands have done the same thing. Glossier, Fenty, like they're they all are kind of like about like treating yourself, like making yourself feel like your best in ways like that, you know, some could argue are just reinforcing beauty standards for women. But I think that like they are often wrapped up in this sense of like, oh, buying makeup. It's like my act of self-care. I feel like those are like some of the really big ones, the big brands that have been really capitalizing off of that. Yeah. You know, I was trying to trace back when self-care and wellness broke out of like the traditional like fitness and food categories and, and spirituality too, which I think is a big one that we haven't touched on. And then it just kind of went like cross category. And I think. From what I can tell, it's because of beauty. And there's a really good example of this with sexual wellness brands. There's a brand that I love that I think has done excellent work in like educating women. And there are a lot of brands that do this, but they were one of the ones, like the splasher ones, I think. And that's Dame Products. And um, there's a very like wellness aesthetic to it. They took out all of like the salaciousness and made it more about like well-being, taking care of yourself. This is something that touches your body. It's the same kind of theme and storytelling that we see with a lot of like feminine hygiene products and now male hygiene products as well. And the interesting story about Dame, which I, I've written about in the past, is the fact that Dame was just seen as vibrators for women. And they made a very conscious decision to wrap it as a self-care item. By wrapping it, I mean like in their storytelling and the packaging and the overall experience. And once they did that, it became so palatable, you know, along with the ideas of like, you know, the culture getting more open-minded to these things, um, that, that that's that's how they went mainstream. Then brands like that were in CVS, they were in Walmart and not like one or two, I'm talking like 50, 60 SKUs. And that's what it took. It, 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 it you know, it, it wasn't necessarily like directly like, feminist ideals or breaking down the patriarchy. Although those things were happening in the background, of course, but the minute they changed the positioning of it, 
that's when it kind of broke out. And I thought, I, I feel like sexual wellness under the guise of beauty, like this is part of your beauty routine now, is a remarkable proof point of how powerful the self-care and wellness ideal has become. Yeah. I mean, that even makes me think of like the infamous rabbit vibrator that like sex mm-hmm. in the city basically propelled to <laughs> make lots of women want to buy it. And like, I feel like that was the first time that women's sexual like desires and cravings were you know, taken seriously in a way, like for all of that show's issues um, and, mm-hmm. out, and outdated us today, like the fact that they made a vibrator like very extremely popular and mainstream, you could argue that that was sort of like a precursor to this new sexual wellness in terms of like the ways in which it really just like normalized taking care of yourself sexually. Okay, so now this makes me think of... I don't even know how I'm going to draw the connection here, but it just makes me think of you had written something about how a lot of media, and we're talking about a TV show now, whitewashes the past. I know that Sex and the City is not like the distant past, but you had an example. I think you talked about George R.R. R. Martin. Mm-hmm. He was responding to criticism about why is Game of Thrones all white? And you had, you know, and you had pointed out his response was, well, this was way back in time. And the fact that, I, Tim just saying that proves that there's an assumption that things that come from the past were white dominated. Am I, am I paraphrasing this correctly? Yeah. I mean, the other thing was that like he was the game of Thrones isn't a real story. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. completely, it's completely <laughs> fantasy. So like you can make the world look however you want because like Westeros doesn't exist, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. Right. Yeah. So my my question here is, would you say that the kind of like whitewashing of media and the fact that media was so instrumental in a lot of ways for propelling self-care and wellness in the ways that we see it now, especially through like Instagram and, and TV and movies, do you think there's a connection there? Do you feel like that's how we, a part of why we got the second track of self-care and wellness that's a little divorced from its roots? I mean, absolutely. I actually think... You know, you asked me earlier about the biggest brands that have contributed to this depiction of self-care and and wellness. And I I hadn't mentioned what I think is probably the biggest one, at least the one of the last 25, 30 years had to have been Oprah, right? Like Mm. Oprah, Oprah has built an entire empire on her favorite things, which are like very much about pampering yourself and and expanding your cultural horizons and luxury items and 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 that sort of thing and you know oprah's a black woman obviously and and lots of people love her but like a lot of white women love her (laughs) and Mm -hmm. a lot of the products that she she hawks are by white women or by white people and so I'm not gonna I'm not trying to accuse Oprah of whitewashing the self-care movement, but I do think that like her audience in many ways, they are the parents of my generation, the millennial generation, um, who were very much the precursors to self-care of like buying that fancy cookware or whatever to treat yourself or buying that bracelet or what like anything she's often yeah. or like favorite things or like over time i think really that in itself is about self-care in many ways and is in its way like a sort of whitewashing of self-care because it's she's not like advertising for 
forever 21 items or something like it's not like these are like low these are all very pretty moderate to expensive items and that in itself is a way i think that like it's been whitewashed and divorced in a way from its roots what's the future of self-care and wellness where is it going how is it changing people but like what should we be focusing on when it comes to self-care i think what it should be and what what it has been for a lot of people and what it hasn't been for a another huge segment of the population is the important thing to remember is that like self-care doesn't mean you completely tune out and you are useless (laughs) in the world. The point is to like take that time to recharge, to make sure that you are caring for yourself in ways that are fulfilling, in ways that are energizing, in ways Ways that will help you get through the world a better person. And like that is what is missing from, you know, the Instagram influencer focused self care, wellness, wholeness aspect of it. Also, like we need to realize that like self care shouldn't take much money, if any money, to do. Again, it's the little actions. It is not reading as much of the news so that you, don't cause yourself unnecessary anxiety. You know, it's cutting people out of your life who are not serving you well, who are harmful to your health. There are ways to do this that don't necessarily require money. Like it doesn't have to be a spa day. It doesn't have to be a gym membership at Equinox. Like it can be many other things. And I think that's what we should be moving toward. And, you know, considering that we're in a pandemic, that could be where we are moving toward because there are no gyms. There's not much traveling happening. Or if there is, it's much more minimalized. I would love to see that going forward. I think what brands need to do is really get back to the basics of why their brand was started to begin with, to really think about, like, who are you trying to serve are there other communities you could be serving that are outside of of what you who you think will like your product? There are ways to engage by especially by bringing in people of color, LGBTQ people into the space behind the scenes. Hire them, hire them in managerial positions, positions where they can actually make decisions and make change. And then I'm not going to say that, like, just because you're a person of color doesn't mean that you are necessarily going to serve the customers the best way. But I think that really making it more inclusive and and recognizing that there is more than one way to do self-care could really, really help, not just in terms of building a brand, but also in terms of committing to different versions of self-care. As self-care and wellness have boomed into a multi-billion dollar industry with huge players bringing their own version of the ideology to the masses, there's been a crop of upstarts that are bringing it back to its core. The Butters Hygienics Co. is a cult favorite with devoted fans from across the country. The company was founded by Jerome Nichols in 2016, a crucial year in our recent history, and since then has only grown. It's vegan, it's cruelty-free, and you'll find a range of products from lotions and leave-in conditioners to face scrubs, soaps, and lube. Jerome has built a very thoughtful brand 
And once you dig in more, you start to really understand how it's so much more than just a set of high quality products. And I wanted to know how he created a unique experience of self-care successfully in such a crowded and oftentimes diluted space. The brand started basically because I was trying to solve the problem of finding a lotion. Essentially, I, I wear shorts a lot, I have very dark skin, I get dry, and I could not find a lotion that would last more than like an hour or so, you know, until the, the water was evaporated and then I'd go back to being ashy and then like all the emulsifiers and stuff would start showing up on my dark skin. And that was not at all what I really wanted from like any sort of like lotion or product. So I just started playing around in, in with different formulas and things. It took several months <laughs> to come up with the first iteration that I actually thought was pretty cool. The idea was that I could make something that was inexpensive, simple in ingredients, but also exactly and perfectly effective at the task at hand, which that sort of like ethos has become the question behind almost all of our products is how do we solve X problem naturally, simply, and then making sure that it absolutely solves that problem. I don't like having to try a million different things. I've always had a very sophisticated taste, like even as a kid. And if stuff doesn't work, I just don't like it. If it doesn't smell right, I just don't like it. If, like if the, if the vibe is not right, I just don't like it. And for me, the butters was my way of making sure that I could get out that I, I'm going to use the word perfection because that is the closest thing I can think of. Or let's say expertise, this expertly made product, this solution based thing into people's hands, which is what I'd always wanted, you know, years of going to different stores and buying stuff for my hair that didn't work, stuff for my skin that didn't work. And just sort of like not quite understanding that these products aren't actually made for me and they aren't made for even serving the desires that I'm looking for. Part of the reason why lotion is the way it is, is because it's mostly made for people with lighter skin, one, and it's mostly made because people just want to feel kind of soft. There is a fear of like oiliness or greasiness among the majority population here in America and that makes really moisturizing things kind of offensive. There's this one thing that I've always seen specifically white people do when they try my product is they'll often feel it on their hands, feel that it's like rich and has a little slip at the beginning and then they'll start wringing their hands because they're not used to having something that actually is like a moisturizer. They're used to something that feels a little drier in the way that lo lotions typically do. It just feels like you're, you've got some wet skin with a tiny, tiny bit of oil there, which is what most people are looking for. That's interesting. So you're saying that we weren't even really addressing the problem of something so basic like moisturizer because there's this weird bias about what moisturizer is supposed to be. Yes, exactly. There, there's a lot of just like fear of feeling like the word that I, I always come up with is nourished because that's often what's happening. Like, for example, one of my biggest overarching goals with the butters is to help white people stop washing their hair so doggone much. 
turning mm-hmm. it into straw, leaching out all the color that they dye into it, turning the blonde color that they dye it, uh, that they uh, dye it brassy, just doing all these sorts of things that make their hair not be the like rich, full, hefty, and oftentimes much more curly mm-hmm. hair that it naturally is. Because what they're trying to do is get it to look like the people that you see in magazines and stuff, just like, you know, black people do. Um, they're trying to straighten their hair to make sure it doesn't even have the slightest wave. You know, when Cher did that back whenever she, she made that popular, she changed the way everybody thought about how hair was supposed to look. And that really damages people all the way up until right now. There are two things that you said that, that make me think on this topic. So one, the fact that, you know, you really wanted to make something that works. And I, I noticed on the labels of the, the bottles that you use for your products, it says you can use anything from the butters. Or I'm paraphrasing. You can use anything from the butters in your regular routine. You don't have to buy all butters stuff. My stuff just works. And what's interesting is so, I mean, that's a very, I felt your voice in the brand. And, and I want to mm-hmm. talk about this for a second. Your voice is is all over this brand. I, I, I feel mm-hmm. your presence, even like coming to the homepage of your website, it starts at the top with a description of what you are using right now. Was that like a, a, a conscious decision? Absolutely. I'm a very opinionated person, <laughs> firstly. <laughs> <laughs> so that makes me very apt to want to share my opinions on things. I'm mm-hmm. also very proud of who I am and what I do and what I make and what I put into the world. My brand's voice is meant to be comforting and authoritative. It has a very like masculine edge to it. It's very Mm -hmm. in your face. It's very bold. And at the same time, you know, the, the colors and things that we use, uh, the, the, the color butters blue, which is definitely not blue. It's very, uh, green blue. <laughs> it's more green than anything. It's meant to evoke a sense of like calm and peace mm-hmm. and serenity and safety. And I spent quite a while putting that color together, making that color myself, looking at it and making sure that I did actually feel what it is that I wanted people to feel in my choice to brand the butters the way I do, which is with the tagline 100% bullshit free. Mm-hmm. It is meant to be just that a lot of times when you're buying into a brand, you're buying into just sort of like their emotional experience. And while it's true that like the first things out of my mouth were, you know, I want to make you feel comforted. I want you to make you feel safe. And, you know, like you're making a good decision. But at the same time, I'm not lying to you about that. You are actually making a good decision. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like when you come to the butters, you're actually making a choice that is going to be worthwhile for your dollar, your time. You're getting a product that is made to last. And that Mm -hmm. is supposed to come through with that bullshit free thing. We tell you everything that's in our products. We don't use shit that you don't want to put on yourself. We don't use parabens. We stay away from alcohols as much as possible, except for like hand sanitizer. Um, (laughs) Like (laughs) we purposefully make sure that we're actually staying on the cutting edge of things to take out of products. And we're making right. sure that even down to making sure that like the ingredients, the version of ingredients that we get are extracted safely. They're coming from cruelty free places. Um, 
and we're just making sure that everything is thought completely through. And that sort of sense of completeness and upfrontness and forthrightness is a part of who we are. Our brand values, that 100% bullshit free thing, it actually breaks down into a set of values that are courage, prudence, ingenuity, respect, and honesty. Those are the five that we live by here. And I, th- I think they're important to every business, but for us, they are what we are putting forth as the things that matter most to us. Yeah. And now that you mentioned those five things, and that was the second thing I was going to mention. There's a feeling, you know, once you get into the brand, once you use the products, read the language, watch the content, you know, follow you on social, there's, there's also a feeling of rebellion, I think, like yeah. rebelling against what you should expect. And I think those five things kind of capture that. That's, that's super interesting. Something else that I noticed about your brand that, you know, let me know if it's actually there, but I get, I get this sense that there's something ritualistic about the way you've kind of packaged these products. And let's talk about some of these products too. You have everything from like hair care and skincare to sexual wellness, like things like lube. You mm-hmm. have um, packages for like pregnancy and for, for moms, which was so interesting to me. Have you thought about the rituals around these things? Like was, was there a ritual? put into this brand. And I ask because one, I sensed it and two, so it's a big part of self-care right now. Absolutely. Like for me, rituals are a part of my life. And when I'm making all of these products, it's inevitable that I'm thinking about the way in which you're going to be using them. The experience you're going to have everything from going to the website through opening the package to actually using it the way the instructions are written are supposed to give you a, a like strong sense of presence and where you are and sort of centering your mind. One of the most common ones that people point to (laughs) is the instructions for our scrubs. A lot of them say something to the effect of dampen your skin, take a little bit of scrub, rub it in lightly, let the scrub do the work rinse off, glow up, and then make them pay your rent and never call them back. Hashtag <laughs> And while I don't necessarily always support, like, you know, taking things from people, I do expect that you should feel like you're worth that while you're using our scrubs. Scrubs are sort of a luxurious thing. They take time. They take purpose from, like, the opening of the jar, there's sound, there's smell radiating up from the jar. You have the sounds of the water, the feelings of the water running over your skin. You have the actual scrub itself, the texture, the grit, all of that against your fingertips, against the actual skin itself. You can feel and just sort of be in that moment. And every single one of our products has that sort of thought put into it. It's why when you open the jar, they're so beautiful looking why they're the texture is just like so smooth and things are sort of like tweaked to a to a perfect gloss so that you can really feel special and take some time out of days that are very rushy a lot of the people who buy from me are like retail workers that's a lot of the people who I serve it's part of why the prices are the way they are most things are under ten dollars uh you or not most things but like 90% of things are under $10, but 
I would say even like 75% of them are under like $7. You can get like a two to four ounce for that price. And that allows for people to actually like come to us and add bits of luxury, bits of ritual, bits of mindfulness to their day, which helps us out overall, like as a community, as a people. And that, that sort of gets into like self-care as a thing being one of the things that I push uh, with all of my products. Yeah, let's talk about the pricing. I noticed it was like wildly affordable and they're they're really nice products. And you really demonstrate through like the user experience, like all the thought that goes into each one of them. So did you know who your user, did you know who you wanted your user to be and you developed this for them? Or did your user evolve and you came to learn about them and then kind of build the brand around them? Like how, how did that work? For me, when, okay, when I was sitting down to talk with my business advisor and we were discussing these things, like when I, when I actually figured out that I wanted this to be like a real business and I was going to work to make this into um, what I call it, like the Jiffy mix of, of health and beauty. What I said to him was that I am essentially the customer because at the beginning of this, I was the person that I was trying to serve and I am unique but not singular. And I think a lot of people are unique in the same way that I am. They have similar issues that I have, or I have the expertise to help them in a way that bigger corporations do not want to. One of the values that is at the core of me is sort of making sure that all things are equitable and that's equity in not just in chance, but in sort of like outcomes so like i understand that there are a billion different shampoos on the market there's a billion different lotions body butters you can go different places get things there's a lot of people who make stuff but the fact of the matter is no one was making stuff for me nobody was making things with a masculine edge that were also soft and comforting and caring and actually did what they were supposed to do there's a lot of like Oh, I like how this smells or I like how this feels or I like how this looks. But when you buy the butters, you're, you're supposed to experience all of it at once. Hmm. You know, it's a unisex brand. You, uh, most of your products, it seems, are for everybody. But I did get the sense that you are presenting a very rich, nuanced, new look or take on masculinity. Yes, Absolutely. I grew up in a household full of full of women. Uh, there was me, three female cousins, and then over the years there were aunts and aunts. <laughs> like <laughs> like my, I, I, we didn't have a grandfather because he died before I was born. Like I mm. like my entire life has been surrounded by women. I mostly socialize with women, and from that there has been a lot of like you know, men are trash, men are horrible, men are this, men are that, you know, and a lot of times men are horrible people. <laughs> it's like, you know, we are humans. But that did leave me a little like worried about what it means to be masculine, what it means to be a man. What is my nature? What is, who am I in this modern world? What desires of mine are normal? What are things that, that are like, are there parts of me that are like antiquated and should be put away? Or are they situational like all, all these different like thoughts about masculinity that led me to question myself a lot and in the time leading up to the creation of the butters 
I was often making sure that I was not shying away from masculinity, making sure that I could experience it for myself and sort of redefine it for myself. And when I got around to actually taking the time to graphically design the brand, it was important to me that it not look girly, but not also hard-edged and masculine. Because the hard-edged masculine masculinity that you often get is dealing with like leather and birchwood and pine and <laughs> hail sand and like all these other like stupid things that are just like, you know, I don't even want to call them stupid. They're just like a vestige of a period in time that like our president is from where things were made to be big and explosive and, and coked out and crazy. And that is not the person that I am. That is not the masculinity that I have. I am a very chill dude. Um, and I think that is a type of man and a type of masculinity that we don't get to see a lot, but I think it's very important to share. The brand is all me. The brand is all myself and, you know, my, my values and the things I want to push forward in life. So having that right there in front, that boldness, that that courage, that prudence, you know, those values, it, it is crucial to making sure that the Butters is what it is. And then how do men respond to the brand? What kind of feedback do you get? I surprisingly get a lot of men buying. <laughs> that alone is an endorsement because men often shop differently than women or even like just say like masculine or feminine people. Oftentimes more feminine people want a more social experience. They want help. They want to be uh, told about things. And oftentimes guys just want to have the information put out in front of them or masculine people want to have the information put out in front of them or they've come to the store already with their mind made up about the thing that they need and they just want to get it in the most efficient way possible. And I try and cater to both of those needs by making sure that all my product pages are descriptive. We've got reviews um, from lots of different people, including like user reviews that we have on the site. We've got videos on a lot of things, instructions, all the ingredients, things that it doesn't have, things it's compatible with, all, all this very important information that if you are a person who's like going to go out there and actually read the information for yourself, you absolutely can. Then there's this other facet of what we do here, which is a very close communication with all of our customers. And we allow, we have a phone and email that you can just contact us when people call the phone number. Yes. I want to interject here and mention that yeah. on the homepage, like not yeah. at the bottom, not hidden, like boldly in the middle of the homepage, you have your phone number and I called it and you picked up. Before mm -hmm. I even knew I was going to do this interview. And that's typical for you, right? Yeah. We get, we get quite a few calls a week. And sometimes people will sit, just text message me to ask me a question about something. And being able to just like be there for people to offer them that helping hand is super important to me because that's what they need. And when I was speaking about equity earlier, a lot of it is making sure people have what they specifically need to succeed, which is why we have so many different products. This is why we have so many different variations. It's why we make even small batches of things that may go out of stock for a while, but we also offer the ability for you to wait list and be made so that we know how much to make. We can make more. 
And we're always trying to make sure that even things that aren't selling the most are kept available for people. Because one of the things I hate is when things get taken away, that you finally found something that really worked for you and uh, it disappears. What I'm hearing is you have a real sense of responsibility to your customers, it seems. Absolutely. I've always had a, a sense of responsibility to just like the community and people around me. It is just kind of my natural state that like when you are in my space, in my presence, it is incumbent upon me to make sure that things are chill and cool. <laughs> like it's, it's I'm not necessarily like a big servant type person, but I absolutely make sure that people have the comfort. And, you know, when I have different friends over, like I'll, I'll make sure that they have three different drinks. If that's like, if they all like something specific, I will just do that for me. That's just normal. Yeah, I I did feel that like when I had the unboxing experience and I started using your products, by the time I had gone through like so many things and just as a customer, not even doing research, like just casually coming across the brand, looking at some of your content, it felt like you had created a vibe in my home, you know, and I I think that's, that's, that's really powerful. I want to talk about, you know, you have a huge spectrum of products, but one of your absolute bestsellers that seems to get like outsized press and awareness is your lube. And I want to talk about this because it feels like, um, and it's, it's been researched and we've talked about this, you know, wellness and self-care kind of created an avenue for sexual wellness and sexual health to really come to the mainstream and to the forefront, like without shame, without old baggage, without having to go to like that weird sex store, like in that district of town, like it's, it's suddenly like a, like a public good almost. It's like a, a moral obligation to take care of your sexual, your health, your, your health sexually. What part of sexual wellness did you want to explore with your brand? I, I know that you have the lube and it's it's a functional product, but like, what was your thinking behind adding this to your product mix? Well, I didn't add it to my product mix. I added everything else to the lube because the product, the products that started the butters are the butters original moisturizer, but almost immediately thereafter was the lube. Because when I was thinking of this, I wanted something simple that would be versatile. And then I wondered just sort of like if I could make something that would be both like a great body moisturizer, something that would keep me not being ashy, and then also something that would allow me to have sex in the way that I wanted to have sex. Because like before I started The Butters, I was a blogger for about seven years (laughs) Mm-hmm. And thinking that it was seven years just kind of threw me off. Um, <laughs> I ran a blog called LTASex.com. I, it's still available, actually, and I post probably two or three times a year with updated things. And I'm still actually working on a book and stuff, but that is separate. Um, before I got into the butters, I was doing that. And I went to college for sexual health. Like, I, I was in high school. I was reading, like, how-to sex books out of interest. I've always been a very sexually interested person. And somewhere along the way, I kind of understood that sexual liberation equals all other liberation because sex is the, one of the unifying things about the entire human race and sort of like all animal race, like really like there's very, very few things besides like respirate and the basics of life that that we do but sex is one of those things and for humans specifically sex is a bonding thing it's a healing thing 
It's a pleasure thing. It's a safety thing. And a lot of times we treat it as just like this scary procreative mess. And that is not (laughs) how little gay me could ever experience it really, except for like the mess part. Um, And I was lucky. Sorry, I was going to say, when you describe it as pleasure, bonding, healing, all those things you just said, if you take it out of the context, like that's, that's self-care. Like it could be self-care, it could be sex, it could be wellness, it could be health. It's interesting. Like if once you unpack like all the stigmas, it's what's left, it it only makes perfect sense that it would be considered part of your self-care routine. Exactly. And for me, there's like no option but to have it there. Sex is just like a part of my every single day life. And I think for a lot of people, that is the case, whether they're waking up and just sort of like looking at themselves in the mirror and being like, oh, my God, you look so great. Look at like, oh, my God. (laughs) Or, you know, falling asleep at night with their hand on their chest and being like, oh, I like the way that feels or whether it's masturbating or whether it's like all sorts of things, Uh, just any, any number of things rather that evoke that sexual arousal, that pleasure, that awareness that being aroused causes, any of that helps you feel more grounded and safe. I literally use masturbation as my, as one of my mindfulness practices because it like, it it allows for like extended breathing repetition. It's basically meditation. It does force you into the present too. Exists. In the same way that like many of my other rituals do, including all of my products. So where do you feel like the future of sexual wellness in this context, like sexual self-care, whatever you want to call it, this, this, this part that you are working in, where is it going? Like, where do you think it's headed? And also, what are you trying to create or push forward for your customers, especially the men? Because that part interests me. Although I plan a lot of things, this is not one thing that I have planned or even thought about. But the phrase that came into my mind instinctively was that it's all good. And I mean that in like the black people way of that, like even down to the molecular level, everything is fine. It's working the way it's supposed to work. Everything exists. Everything's normal. And we kind of have to get past a lot of the stigma that's been put on throughout society as we've come together in like bigger groups and made different norms. We have to like peel back through that and go back and understand why it is that we're doing a lot of things that we do. And that that's, that's bigger than sexuality, but it's still crucial to like our health overall as like a community and a society and as a people. Right. So do you see anybody besides yourself in the landscape doing anything interesting or provocative or kind of moving the needle um, in a way that you admire in any of these spaces? For me, that answer is hard because I respect a lot of people. But for my specific brand of sexuality and pushing things forward with open arms that are ever working to be wider, I don't know that there is. But that gets to why the butters exist as well, which is the sense within me that if it doesn't exist, make it. 
So I'm making it. I'm making a space wherein trans people are normal. I'm making a space where the language is different. I'm making a space where things are chill. And I'm pushing that message, that sort of like uh, lifestyle through the brand of the Butters. It's that sort of like masculine emotional penetration skill that I, I, I enjoy using so much. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So you're creating this space, you're holding it for so many people. And it's the brand is a, is a fantastic experience. That's why I want to talk to you about it. But I have to ask you right now, what are you doing personally to practice self-care? Making sure that I take it easy on myself. That is hard for me <laughs> because I am a boy and I like working hard. I like even like straining my body and being put through things that are a bit treacherous. I enjoy that. It's just a part of my nature. And one thing that I will do is I will often overwork myself because I enjoy working. And right now I need to be sitting my ass down and delegating, practicing being the CEO that I said I wanted to be, practicing relying on people, practicing being a part of a community. And those things are not things that always come naturally to me, but there are things that I are really important to me being able to feel healthy and safe. And that like this thing that I'm doing, I'm not just extending all of my care and energy out into the world and then leaving myself an empty husk, but instead I am actually being fulfilled by what it is that I'm doing. And when I can't do as much, I can still be fulfilled because I've built something that people want to be around and be within. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unseen Unknown. If you're new here and you like what you're listening to, I have one request and one offer. First, we'd love it if you left us a review. I read those reviews. They mean a lot to me, but more importantly, they help us get this podcast in front of the right people. Secondly, I'd love to give you more of our brand strategy thinking in the form of articles that we write, the videos that we publish, and anything else that captures our attention. Just sign up for our newsletter at conceptbureau.com forward slash insights, and I promise you won't be disappointed. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.